Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. There's a Southern church joke that asks, why do we always attend the 11 a.m. service? And the answer is because we're not morning people. But why aren't we morning people? Well, the Bible's clear. Morning leads to dancing. <laughs> we <laughs> Delayed reaction, okay. <laughs> we laugh, but if we're honest, there is something about that relationship between morning and dancing, between pain and joy that we struggle to understand. And yet it's in the Bible, not just in Ecclesiastes. So let's try to unpack that and understand God's heart in it today. Would you pray with me? God, we've come to meet with you, and we just ask that you would meet with us in these next moments, that you would come and be present and encounter us. Would you just take a moment and pray for yourself? Wherever you've been this week, just ask God to meet you where you are. And then would you take a moment and pray for me, that these would be God's words and not mine, that they would be helpful to you. God, I ask that you would remove me and that you would speak today. We've come to meet with you Would you encounter us today in such a way that our lives would radically change? That when we leave here today, we would know you better and we love you more than right now. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. A wise man once told me that if you want to know how the world works, you ask a young person. But if you want to understand how life works, you ask an old person. We're in this series in Ecclesiastes, so if you have your Bible, go ahead, turn them on, open them up to Ecclesiastes 3, 4, where we see Solomon, the wisest person ever to walk this earth, now in his old age, and he's looking back on his life, and he's sharing the lessons that he has learned. So if we want to understand how life works, this is the person to listen to. When we started this series a few weeks ago, Pastor Joe pointed out that these seasons that Solomon describes are not parallels of good and bad. This isn't a season to indulge and a season to avoid, but rather that God is present and working in and through each of these seasons. And if we can see the presence of God in these seasons, then our life has found its purpose. But admittedly, some of these seasons are harder than others. And today we're going to talk about one of those seasons. Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon writes, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to weep, a time to mourn. 
What Solomon is talking about here is not disappointment or frustration. This isn't becoming sad because your latte got cold or because you order the pepperoni pizza and they delivered a pineapple one instead or because you think a ref made a bad call that cost your team the Super Bowl. <laughs> the term that Solomon uses here for to mourn is one that describes the mourning process that follows one's death. We get a good picture of this in the New Testament when Lazarus dies. In John 11, we read that Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are accompanied by a crowd at their home when Jesus arrives. And when Jesus gets there, he sees them weeping. And that may sound normal, but remember that at this point, Lazarus has been dead for four days. This crowd didn't just send flowers in the card, but they showed up, they're present, and they're weeping, and it has been four days, and they are still at it. What Solomon is talking about is deep, true, devastating loss. The kind of loss that shakes your foundation, that shatters your world, and that alters your life. Losing a loved one. Losing your marriage. Losing your family. Losing your health. Losing a job, your home, your wealth. Losing your peace. Perhaps the loss came through death. Perhaps it comes through abuse. Perhaps it comes through failure or through sin. Some of you wake up every morning and you're just going through the motions because there is no capacity left anymore for you to process, to think, or to feel. And for some of you, that would be a huge win because you struggle to get up every morning because the darkness has just enveloped you. And sometimes that grief in our lives is so suffocating that we physically struggle to breathe. And the emotional pain within us actually becomes a physical pain. Can you relate to that? Because that is what Solomon is talking about. There are generally two approaches in our culture to this kind of grief. The first is that we try to outrun grief. And it sounds something like this. Suck it up, buttercup, put on your big boy pants and get over it. And we have a Christianized version of this. And it goes like this. The Christian's life should be so full of joy that there's no room for grief. And so what we do is we plaster on a big smile. And every time somebody asks how we're doing, we say, well, this, you know, is the list of that might be a little bit rough or a little bit chaotic, but God is good. When those trials and seasons of grief come, our mentality becomes to power past it and to not let anything get us down. And so what we often do is we find a distraction that we can pour all of our time and energy into. Sometimes it's a destructive distraction, like excessive drinking. Sometimes it's a productive one, like work. But we pour all of our time and energy into this distraction with the hopes that we can get past the season quickly and avoid that deep pain within us. Because somewhere along the way, we convinced ourselves that Christians don't grieve. The second approach to grief is that we try to outweigh grief. 
That approach sounds like this. Just leave me be because my life is a wreck. And we also have a churched version of this one. And it goes like this. God meets you where you are. So you don't do anything. Just sit and wait. And when, when grief and when, when trials and seasons of grief come, our mentality begins is to wallow in our pain and just to wait it out and wait for it to pass. And oftentimes what happens is we actually hold on and latch on to that loss in an attempt to salvage any remaining pieces of happiness that might still be there before it just all passes away. And in doing so, that pain and that grief just fester until eventually it shuts us down. Everywhere we go, everything we do, we see, we hear, experience, everything reminds us of our loss. And we can't escape it because the longer we wallow in it, the deeper it goes. And sometimes it puts down roots so deep that we begin to ask where God is in any of this. Because God's supposed to meet us where we are. Or we begin to wonder, does God actually care? Because if God cared, clearly he would remove this grief and this pain in its entirety. One mentality is active and seeks to outrun. The other mentality is passive and seeks to outweigh. But notice here that Solomon preached, prescribes neither. Notice how Solomon describes this season of mourning. First, Solomon calls these seasons. You know what you can't do with seasons? You can't outrun seasons. These are appointed times that have a start and an end. And no matter how fast or how far or how hard you run or how great the distraction is that you find, these seasons come and go in their own time and the season persists. Secondly, notice that Solomon doesn't say that there's a time for grief or there's a time or season of sadness, but rather he uses the active voice here. He says, a time to weep and a season to mourn. That is intentional on Solomon's part. Notice how he introduces these seasons in verse one. He says, there is a time for every activity under the heavens. Mourning and weeping require active engagement. Mourning and weeping are not just feelings or a state of being but it's an activity. And so just as we can't outrun the pain, we also don't outweigh the pain, but we engage it. Solomon understands something that we too often forget, that you can't get around, past, or beyond pain. The only way is through. And so you don't power past or wallow in. You don't outrun or outweigh but you mourn and weep. So what does that look like? Job gives us a pretty good example in Job 3. Job has suffered so much loss and pain that he curses the day he was born. It is okay to ask God why. It is okay to be honest with God. Engage in this season. Grieve and grieve deeply. And when you have no more words for your grief, then weep and let your tears do your grieving for you. 
You know, Jesus understands the language of tears. In John 11, when Lazarus becomes seriously ill, Jesus actually delays going to him and lets him die. The Bible tells us that he tells his disciples that he did this for their good, that they may see the glory of God and believe. So Jesus lets Lazarus die, and then as he goes to Lazarus, he knows that he is moments away from bringing Lazarus back from the dead. But notice what the Bible tells us about this moment. The Bible says Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. A major part of my work involves research and writing and public speaking, not just for myself, but for a plethora of clients. And over the years, I began to use my work as my escape when things in my life were spinning out of control. And the reason was simple. I was good at it. And so it was one area that I could invest my energy in that I would be successful at. And at least in one part of my life, I could control something and I could be winning. In 2016, I was going through some challenging things in my life, and so as per my habit, I just poured myself into my work. And then I smacked my head and sustained a concussion. Now, I have had concussions before, so I didn't think anything of it, but things quickly deteriorated. The next day, I wasn't able to drive in a straight line. By the end of the week, I couldn't remember the destination of where I was going. And by the next week, I couldn't remember how to get back to my own house. So I underwent concussion testing, and they discovered that I had damaged my vestibular system. I had suffered significant memory loss, and my reaction times were delayed. One of my colleagues pointed out to me as time went that I was beginning to repeat sentences and even full paragraphs in press releases. Eventually, my my brain and my speech became out of sync, and so I was like a walking blooper reel everywhere I went. And at one point, I sat down at a meeting, signed a contract in this meeting, and two weeks later, ran to the same gentleman, and I had zero recollection of ever meeting him before. So what does a speechwriter and a communicator do when he loses all and any ability to write or communicate. My work and my livelihood was over. And to make matters worse, that was my escape. That was how I ran. And so I had nothing to run to. And so the only thing I could do was mourn and weep. And I wept. And I threw a few tantrums in the midst of all that weeping. Seven years later, I still have residual symptoms from that concussion. But here's the thing. I can stand here today and share that with you precisely because God shut off every avenue for me to run and instead led me on the journey of mourning and weeping. Here's the beauty of the gospel that we are never without hope. 
We grieve, but the Bible reminds us that we do not grieve without hope, that in all of our trials and pain and grief, there is still hope. Solomon writes that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. And as with weeping and mourning, he is not talking about trivial things, but this is profound. So think about what makes you laugh or what makes you dance. It is an overabundance of joy that just that flows out of you, that is, is so deep that you cannot contain it with words anymore. The only thing that you can do is to burst into spontaneous laughter and dancing. Imagine being so full of joy that just bubbles over and out of you and that you just express it in loud laughter and spontaneous dancing. When Solomon's dad, King David, brought the Ark of the Covenant back, he was so full of joy that the Bible tells us that he was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Have you ever experienced joy like that? Some of you have been Christians a long, long time, and you serve the church, you know all the answers to all the small group discussion questions, but you have never experienced that kind of joy. You have never been consumed and overwhelmed by God's unbridled joy. I don't know about you, but I want that. I want that. And so where does that joy come from? The Bible tells us over and over again throughout Scripture, we are told that this joy comes through our Mourning. God tells his prophet Jeremiah, I will turn their mourning into joy, and I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. In the Psalms, King David says to God, You turn my wailing into dancing. In John, Jesus tells his disciples, You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So here's what we learn from this that God can take our deepest pain and transform it into overwhelming joy. We often think of grief and joy as these opposites that are just unaffiliated with each other, but that's not the case. And we've seen this throughout the series, that these seasons are not unrelated to each other, but rather they're intertwined with each other. And the relationship between weeping and laughing, between mourning and dancing, between pain and joy is not that one season closes and then another season begins, but rather that God takes the pain and he transforms it into ecstatic joy. So how do we experience this joy? By going through the pain. We know that God transforms our pain into joy, but that's not to say that pain isn't painful. It is. Bad things are still bad things. Grief is still suffocating, and pain is still deeply painful. And part of mourning is leaning into that reality. But here's the thing God does not waste pain, there is a purpose for pain. Joy comes not in the pain itself, but in its purpose. And when we embrace that purpose, then the pain becomes worth it 
because we know it's leading us somewhere greater. Take, for example, working out. When you go to the gym, you see some of these crazy people lifting weights, and as they pump iron, they're going, oh, that burns, that burns so good. Some of you are those crazy people. Here's the thing, that makes no sense because that feeling that you've got does not feel good. It is your muscles breaking down and screaming at you. Okay, there is nothing about that sensation that actually feels good. So why do people say that it feels good? Well, it's because there's a purpose for the pain. They understand what lifting will do for them, and that is good. And so they see the purpose for the pain, and they find their joy in the midst of the pain. Or consider childbirth. Now, this is something I have no experience in. I have not been there, done that. But from what I've been told, childbirth is one of the highest thresholds of pain the human body can endure. So why then, for generation after generation after generation, do women all over the world continue to do it? Is it not because there's a purpose for the pain? Because in the few moments you know that you will physically hold that joy. And that makes the pain worthwhile. And James, he writes, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not a trial, trials, plural, of many kinds. James says, consider it joy when you face all kinds of trials. Why? Because there's a purpose to that pain. He goes on, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If we mourn because we have lost, then our joy comes in being made complete. So how do we be made, how do we become complete? By letting perseverance finish its work. And where does that perseverance come from? From the testing of our faith through trials. So that pain has a purpose. And when we embrace that purpose, being made complete and not lacking anything, then we find our joy. John reminds us in Revelation that there is a coming a day where Jesus will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Church, that day is coming. That day is coming. The mourning and the pain will pass. But what will remain is the work that God has begun in us as individuals, but also as a family, that he will see through to completion. And that is something worth celebrating. That is something worth dancing over. And so let's lean into that. A pastor of mine once pointed out that every person and every family knows pain 
but not everyone knows joy. And so how do we journey from pain to joy? There's three practical steps that we can begin practicing today. Number one, actively engage mourning and joy. Whatever season you're in, don't fight it. Yield to it. When you find yourself in the season of mourning, mourn well and embrace the purpose for that pain. One of the things that I have found helpful when I'm in that season, especially if I can't put my grief into words, is to read the book of Job and to allow Job's words to become your own. And then when you find yourself in the season of joy, don't downplay it. Laugh loudly. Dance madly. Let the joy bubble over so that all the people around you can feel and see and experience the joy of Jesus. Yeah, it's worth clapping for. Secondly, mourn your sin and rejoice over Christ's forgiveness. Whatever season of life we find ourselves in, we must learn to mourn our sin and to rejoice in the forgiveness of Christ. We're heading toward the Easter holiday, and what we often do is we just kind of rush toward the empty tomb and toward Easter, and we skip over that bloody cross. But here's the thing, Ecclesiastes 3, 4, this is the gospel. Jesus endured a painful, immensely painful death, and our sin was the reason why. And Jesus endured that pain because there was a purpose to the pain. And from that comes the ecstatic joy of his resurrection and triumph over death. So in our journey toward that joyous resurrection Sunday, may we feel the pain of our own sin. May we know the depth of our sin and mourn it well. I believe that in these next few weeks, if we take seriously our sin and the gravity of our sin and we mourn over it and even weep over it, it will radically change our perspective on Easter. And we will experience the joy of the resurrection in a way we've never experienced before. Lastly, let's mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Jesus tells us that his joy can be found in us and that his joy can be made complete. How? He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. And he tells us that what that command is. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. We like to throw that phrase, love one another, around like it's going out of fashion. But Jesus is clear about what it means. Are you willing to lay your own life down for someone else? Church, if you see someone in the season of mourning, come and mourn with 
them. Your burdens become my burdens. What breaks your heart breaks my heart. The reality is that there are too many in our congregation who are journeying through pain alone. Come around them and mourn with them. And when we do, we all get a front row seat to God transforming that pain into ecstatic joy. Oh my goodness, when you see someone in the season of joy, do not let them celebrate alone. In Luke 15, Jesus shares three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And in each of these, notice how the parable ends. They call their friends and neighbors together and they say, rejoice with me. Church, this is our invitation. Let's dance together. I want to close by introducing you to a friend of mine. Her name is Katie. And Katie embodies these words of Ecclesiastes 3-4. She's experienced deep, profound pain and deep, profound joy. And it has transformed her into somebody who loves deeply. So watch this. When I think about my childhood, it was very happy. I have a lot of fond memories from my childhood. I have a really tight-knit family. It was always me, my mom, my dad, and my little brother, who's my best friend in the whole world. I grew up coming here to Faith Church, and we were basically here anytime the doors were open. My dad was often known as the silly guy. He was the funny guy. He could light up a whole room. He was that person that when he showed up, Everyone knew they were gonna laugh until their rib cage hurt. He was a light to a lot of people, but he was also the type of person that could tell when someone was off, could tell when someone was hurting, going through something. He would just leave a crowd and go to that person because he could just sense that something was wrong. And I remember that happening so many times growing up. I always knew my dad struggled with depression. I knew he took medication for his depression but it was very normal to me. It was as normal as the fact that he had ADD or he was bald. It was just who my dad was. Looking back though, I can see how obvious it was and how obviously it was getting worse and worse. But at the time it was so gradual, I didn't notice it. When I was a sophomore in high school, I was turning 16. And as my sweet 16, we went up to my cabin in New York, which was my dad's favorite place on earth. Happy memories. And then January 3rd, my whole world flipped upside down. I came home from school to find out that my dad had committed suicide. And it was literally, he was in my life one day, gone the next. He was in my life that morning when I left for school. I remember saying bye to him, came home and he was gone. And it came as a shock to all of us. None of us saw this coming. Um, it wasn't like in the movies where there's a note or anything like that. He was just gone. Over the next few days and weeks, I remember just being in a state of shock and feeling like I was in the world, but 
not really in it. Like I was seeing everything happening around me, but not really experiencing it. Everything was just a blur. People were coming and going. They were dropping off food. They were visiting, spending time with us. And really, I remember during this time, Faith Church, the body of Christ coming around us in such a tangible way. During this time, I remember clinging to the Word of God like I never had before, but I just wanted to spend every moment I had in His Word, and it was the only thing giving me hope. It was the only thing giving me consistency and confidence in what I know to be true because everything else in my world was spinning and changing and it was very dark. And I remember kind of God being this one unchanging thing in all of it, this one constant thing that I could trust would never change, would never move, would never leave me. He would always be there the same. I don't know how people go through seasons like this without the hope of God because it was like nothing I've ever experienced, obviously, and it was just a really, really heavy, dark time. Looking ahead to things like my future high school graduation, college graduation, marriage someday, like knowing my dad wouldn't be there for any of those things was really heavy and really dark. And so having the hope of Christ as my only unshaking firm thing was really the only thing that got me through this time and continues to get me through this. Back in 2019, I started dating this really amazing man who reminds me a lot of my dad and he ended up becoming my husband and he was the one all along that my parents were praying for, I was praying for, and we got married in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic, had a COVID wedding, and fast forward, now we're bringing a little baby girl into the world in June. We are obviously in a really joyful season, being pregnant and expecting this little girl to come. But the thing about grief is I've learned the bigger the joyful things in life, the bigger the grief feels alongside it. So I'm so excited to hold my baby girl and I'm so sad my dad will never hold my baby girl. And in the same way, I am so thankful to God to have this amazing husband that I prayed for for so many years. And I'm also so sad that my dad never got a chance to meet Jake and didn't get to walk me down the aisle or do a first dance with me at my wedding. On this side of heaven, we're never going to experience full, true joy. We'll have glimpses of it, but there's always gonna be this shadow of we're living in a broken world with sin and trials and loss and heartache. And so the loss of my dad just makes me want heaven that much more. And it points me towards something greater. And I, I think about 1 Corinthians 13, 12, that talks about what we see now in part, we'll see fully face to face someday. And you know, this is just only a glimpse of the joy that we are gonna feel and experience in heaven when we're face to face with our heavenly father.